Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to SACPA, the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Michael Frank. As the moderator today, I must remind you that this session will be recorded. Uh, in front, we have the microphones for question period later, and also washrooms are located through the door to the right, right by the coat racks. So what is SACPA? SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work. We have partners such as the University of Lethbridge for its ongoing support, which many members are in attendance today, including the distribution of notices, which also was provided by the University of Lethbridge. For the food, we'd like to thank Country Kitchen Catering for preparing the lunch. Now, what I'm going to do is give a brief uh, overview of what's going to happen this afternoon. Uh, we're trying to be a little bit punctual. We like to uh, uh, respect the people that do are here on break, so please bear with me. Uh, from noon to about 12.30, we'll be having uh, Dr. Yale Boulanger's talk. At 12.30, we'll be having lunch. And from 1 to 1.30, we'll be having a session, the Q&A session. What I'd like to do right now is introduce Dr. Yale Boulanger. Dr. Yale Boulanger is an Associate Professor of Native American Studies at the University of Lethbridge. He's trained as a political historian. His doctoral work at Trent University focused on the emergence and evolution of Aboriginal political organizations in the late 19th and early 20th century. Currently, his research involves NIMBY, and I'm going to leave that to Dr. Yale Boulanger to expand on. However, this is in co cooperation with Dr. David Gregory and Dr. Joanne Fisk, at both at the University of Lethbridge. Please give Dr. Yale Boulanger a warm hand of applause. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate the invite, and it's a pleasure to be up here speaking. Um, I just have to let Mike know, who is my graduate student, that he wasn't supposed to upstage me clothing-wise today. <laughs> We just added a year to his master's, so. <laughs> like I said, I appreciate the invite, and this is, uh, this is really exciting in a sense. Uh, I've had an opportunity to talk about these issues, not in Lethbridge, um, over the last year at a variety of different events, and I'm actually quite nervous today because this is my community, and I'm actually presenting what we think are some fairly interesting and innovative findings from a research project that began back in 2008, uh, to the community for the first time. So uh, you'll have to bear with me here. Uh, normally I really have a good time up here chatting and talking and whatnot, but this is interesting because this is the community that I live in, and these findings in many ways um, uh, I, I find to be troublesome, and uh, I hope that at the very least this is an informative session. Uh, a little bit of housekeeping, as Mike suggested. You're going to see some words up on the screen, and you're going to hear some language that uh, may be disturbing, uh, the idea is not to be provocative. The idea is to simply present some of the ideas that we have gathered since 2008 from a variety of different individuals, including uh, city councillors, uh, folks and business owners here in town, uh, other uh, political leaders, as well as uh, a very good cross-section of uh, Native people who have decided to participate in this project. Uh, David Gregory could not be here today, but uh, Dr. Joe Fisk, who is uh, one of the, the, the co-investigators on this project, is today. So uh, just to add to the pressure, I've got her scrutinizing everything that I'm saying. So what we'll do is we'll just start off giving you a little sense of uh, 
how this project came to be. And what I've done is just give you some slides to look at. I'll probably repeat everything for those of your visual read away. For those of you who want to just listen, that's uh, why we're doing this this way. Uh, when I moved here in 2004, uh, I moved back to Lethbridge. I did my Bachelor of Arts here back in 1994 through 1998, at which point I also worked at the Lethbridge Herald uh, full-time. So I had a really interesting lens on Lethbridge from the perspective of a journalist and from the perspective of a student who was kind of ensconced up at the university. And uh, I, I kept in touch with people here the whole time. I taught every year from 2001 to 2004, came back as a sessional instructor. So really for the last 16 years, I have called Lethbridge my home, except for a brief, I guess, four-year period in between when I was in Manitoba and Ontario uh, doing post-graduate uh, studies there, or my graduate studies there. And when I came back, one of the uh, issues that I was kind of surprised to discover is how many uh, First Nations folks had moved into Lethbridge. When I left in the late 1990s, there was maybe 1,200 people on the census, and when I came back in 2004, uh, there was well over 3,500. So there was obviously an influx of people uh, from the reserves as well as people in town, birth rates, people living in the city for their third generation, and uh, the population was growing. Yet at the same time, when I reviewed the newspaper and other media in town, it didn't seem like the relationship between First Nations folks in Lethbridge and non-Native people was really improving, to say the least. And so I was invited to participate with the Aboriginal Housing and Action Society folks in generating some data so that we could get a handle uh, precisely on uh, the statistics of people living in town, how many were here, how did the, what did the profile look like. But also we wanted to get a sense of why the... Uh, uh, why there was such a high rent or a high, a high rate of native people who weren't able to find rental accommodations in town? It kind of started as a secondary line of research, but we decided to pursue it. And so what I did is uh, develop a, a research instrument, basically a questionnaire that we delivered to more than 325 families in town, representing over 1,100 people. So within this project, we captured about one third of the population, which was fairly uh, impressive to say the least. And what we found is that unlike most of the news stories which were talking about urban Aboriginal or Aboriginal urbanization occurring, it had occurred. We've got the third generation of First Nations people living in town today. The census showed 136 in 1976 Indians living in the downtown core. And uh, in the two th 2001 census, there was over 3,000, and we estimate those numbers to be closer to 5,500 today. What we found is this growing population needed homes. Uh, there was a lot of people uh, living uh, kind of home to home. They were couch surfing. There was a high uh, proportion of homeless individuals in town and so on. Uh, what we found as well, too, is that people were very aware of their situation. And this might not seem like a significant finding, but when people start to internalize these issues and they become aware, uh, you can go one of two routes. You can become politically motivated and you can interact on that sphere, or you can become a little bit more aggressive and challenge uh, the norms of the society. So none of those issues have really come to pass at this point in time, but it's interesting that people are very clear and they've intellectualized their situation. Uh, we found as well that ghettoization was occurring. People were living specifically uh, as a concentrated group of individuals. Uh, we've heard the language spoken of Bannock Row up on the north end and things like that. Uh, but what we found is that uh, high unemployment rate, we've got a high transiency rate, people moving around a lot, uh, high debt load servicing, uh, people living on credit cards, uh, many credit cards, paying off one to live on the next for you know months and months and years at a time. And at the time, too, we had an incredibly uh, low vacancy rate, 0.2% at, at that stage. 
And what we also found is because of that, there was an incredible level of rent competition. So there's a lot of people uh, out there uh, who could choose who their tenants were in terms of their being a landlord. And, oh, sorry, ultimately, uh, that little word prejudice popped up. Not in my backyard was associated with that. Uh, what we were hearing from people is that uh, they were being told that we're not renting you because you're native. Uh, we fear renting to you because we let one native in the house. The whole family from the reserve is going to show up. A lot of these comments started to pop up. So what we wanted to do at that point is develop a little bit more of a comprehensive research approach. And that's when I got in contact with Dr. Joe Fisk and Dr. Gregory, and we formed a research team, the three of us. And since 2008, we have been pursuing this research. We've interviewed about 48 people at this point. We've conducted four focus groups in town. Uh, we've surveyed all the literature. Uh, we've had an opportunity to work very closely with Diane Randall and the folks at Shia. So uh, that's my political plug, by the way. So, so we've had a really neat opportunity to see things from a variety of different perspectives in town. And one of the first projects that we started to take a very close look at was the Native women's transition home issue as it popped up, uh, I guess about 18 months ago. And really, the Northside community that was proposed for the move of the transition home resisted quite aggressively uh, location of that agency in their neighborhood. And what we did is we took a look at all of the letters that were written by people in the community. We took a look at the news stories. Uh, we went to the hearings and we observed, you know, personally what was going on. And what we found is that that neighborhood, and I'm not suggesting it represents all neighborhoods in Leth Lethbridge, but it captures well what we've seen in the focus group so far, is that people, because they weren't listened to when they said we don't want Native people in our neighborhood, they felt that their democratic rights were being undermined. Uh, they didn't take into consideration all the people in the neighborhood. They just thought that their rights were being challenged. We started to see a very strict dichotomy develop in terms of I live in this neighborhood, I'm an insider. Anybody who may want to live in this neighborhood, I have to vet first. I have to determine whether I want them here. I may allow that outsider to become an insider, but a very inclusive relationship or a very exclusive relationship was developing in terms of who was considered to be a proper citizen. We also found that uh, we're starting to see people constructed uh, in the sense that folks in the neighborhood who, who were resisting the transition home were saying that uh, those individuals really shouldn't be allowed in here. This is a neighborhood of citizens and citizens are voters, citizens are taxpayers. And, well, we all know deep down that Native people don't pay taxes. They don't vote. Those sorts of stereotypes popped up on a regular basis in the dialogue. And perhaps what it all boils down to is the other or a group of individuals that we consider to be opposite of the norm was developed. And that really makes it difficult to develop uh, an inclusive environment. And so what we found is that these ideas were being bandied about not only by this group of individuals in the North End, but when we did the focus groups, these ideas were being utilized and they were being uh, projected at us when we interviewed people at Tudor Estates, at Westminster, at... Um, other places, that <laughs> slipped my mind at this point in time. But we've had an opportunity to collect quite a bit of information. What we've ended up discovering is that there's a very specific process at play when it comes time to renting to Native people. And uh, for those of you who may be listening, I'll try and describe this uh, on the radio and, and on your iPods and whatnot. I'll try and describe this to the best of my ability. But what we've got is a chart that, li that puts the potential renter, an Aboriginal person, at the very top. And we know uh, from various statistical profiles that they have economic issues that are going to have to be dealt with before they can even consider renting a place. So what we call this is the dominant filter. 
a moment in time where people have to make that really, you know, that very strong decision to move into the city because they finally have enough money to do so. Then what we found is that landlords were really in a strong position to filter people out while not looking like they were overtly discriminatory against Native people. This is a very subtle process. Like you have to remember that discrimination and racism is illegal in Canada. It's not tolerable by any stretch of the imagination. But what we were finding is that uh, discrimination in terms of keeping Native people from renting places was occurring on a regular basis. And what we found is a three-filter process, if you will. And what we've got is in the first filter, it just says on reserve, people are going to uh, be very wary of moving into Lethbridge because they feel that it's a highly uh, discriminatory environment. It's very racially charged, and um, they're very fearful about being able to find a place. And so what we found many times is people looking to rent a place in September started in June. Not two weeks before, but in June. Uh, we found individuals going and visiting 100 homes and we've got logs of them visiting 100 homes and being denied rental accommodations. Uh, so what we've got is a, a story that's been generated on uh, both the, the Bikani and the Kainai First Nations that Lethbridge is not an inviting environment. But then if they did kind of uh, get their courage up and they came to town, they wanted to find a place, or those who lived in town were seeking a place as well, what we found is that technology served to be a very effective filter for landlords. What you could do is you could screen people. If somebody's name, like Eddie Wolfchild, popped up on your call display, you could simply say, we're not going to rent to you, which happens. More often, they would just say the place has been rented. Or if you saw the prefix of 737, you knew that was a blood reserve, and you could get shut out that way. Saw it happen on a regular basis. And uh, another issue was accent. Uh, folks whose uh, first language is Blackfoot who demonstrate a very strong accent oftentimes would be shut out. I did a very quick survey one day where I found a couple of people to go along with me where we called seven landlords consecutively, a person with a very strong accent, somebody who proclaimed their last name to be Wolfchild, and then uh, a guy with no accent who said, my name is Joe Davis. And the accented people and the people with the native last name were not invited to view the house. Within five minutes of calling back with the Ed Davis name, we were all invited to participate in a viewing of the home. So these things are occurring on a, ba on a regular basis here in Lethbridge, which is disturbing. Now, that was just me. I wasn't ethically sanctioned by the university to do that, but I just wanted to get a sense as to whether or not people were uh, telling me the truth or they were being accurate in presenting these ideas to me. Ultimately, what we've got here is uh, another process that uh, is the third filter, whereby people show up, and we call it phenotype or gene expression, but it's simply, you're noticeably native. And um, of the 25 people that we have interviewed so far, 23 have told us outright that uh, they have been told, we don't rent to native people. We don't rent to Indians. Again, a violation of their human rights on so many levels. But this filtration process is very effective in keeping people out of rental accommodations but if you can see up in the uh, right-hand corner there, we've got the issue of homelessness, which can be defined as living in a multi-generational home or a multi-family home, couch surfing. This filtration process, as you can see, it goes all the way back, and it can end up with homelessness on a regular basis, and that's what we're seeing as well. So again, like I said, there's some very harsh ideas that are being presented here today, but um, I was asked to talk about them, and I, was, I warned everybody that I spoke to beforehand that these would be the ideas I'd be presenting today. What we've got is the end result. You may find rental accommodations. You may find home ownership. But what we're finding is that even in the post-rental, post-ownership phase, uh, the idea of not in my backyard pops up on a regular basis. A former student of mine and uh, his wife, I was talking to him one day, 
and a woman in the neighborhood, when she found out that they owned the house, asked whether or not the band bought it for them or whether the government had a hand in buying the house for them and so on. So what we're finding is that there's another stage that we still have to work on and flesh out at this point in the game. But I guess the idea here is, does NIMBY exist? And what we're finding is that, yes, it does. Does this mean that uh, racism exists in town? That's for another discussion. What I want to just convey at this point is that we have a lot of people in our sample telling us that they think racism exists, and that's important. Their perception of the environment is incredibly vital to us understanding how to put correctives in place to fix the situation. As I said, 92% uh, of our sample heard we don't rent to Native people or Indians. Uh, the language is very fluid in terms of how those folks are described by these landlords or these potential landlords. Um, all of them said that they experienced a moment of discrimination or racism in their uh, attempts to find housing. Um, we discovered that there were some landlords, uh, we're still working this out, but some landlords have told us and have told some of the people who participated in the project that they'd rather leave their home vacant. And that means they own a house separately that they will rent out. They'd rather keep that vacant than rent to First Nations. As suggested, a young woman, a mother of one uh, who is a single mom, uh, trying to get her university education done, viewed more than 100 homes, and she brought the names and all of the telephone numbers to me. They were there. She viewed, I think, uh, it, was, it was over 50. I think the number was 61 or 62 homes, and she was denied rental accommodation each time. And I think the important point here is that whenever we hear these uh, ideas pop up, or oftentimes when we hear these ideas pop up, uh, it's simply First Nations folks complaining uh, as opposed to uh, us reflecting on perhaps some negative things that are going on. Now again, as I said, there's going to be some nasty language pop up here, but this is what has been told to us by our informants who have participated in this project. The language of Indian is frequently utilized. Now, uh, people will cite that the Indian Act is still in play at this point and that uh, the word Indian is still a fairly popular term in Canada. Legally, yeah, okay. Uh, we tend to use Aboriginal First Nations, or as the folks in the communities around us stress, call us Nitsitapi, call us Kainai, call us Bigani. Those are our nation names. Indians is frequently used. The language of they, them, outsiders, again, uh, when we talk with people in our focus groups and so on, is utilized. I'm not even going to talk about the language that's being used in this next section, but this is what people have told us they have been called. Now, I've lived in this town a long time, and I've heard all of this language utilized outside this research project. So to me, there's some validity attached to all this. Um, a number of people told us that it's not uh, an infrequent event for a Native male to be stalked by a group of young white guys in a car. They get out, they pile out of the car, give them a little bit of a beating, but that's his initiation into living in Lethbridge. Again, we heard that a number of times, not from just one individual. And then finally, there's concern over what people call the systematic policing program to keep all the drunks out of Galt Gardens, which becomes code for let's get the Native people out of that environment. So again, like I said, uh, I hope I'm not bringing nasty news to your lunch today, but these are things that are popping up on a regular basis. And, and to me, I find it quite disturbing, both as an academic and as a member of this community. Now, when we've spoken with uh, potential landlords, and that's who—that's a group of people that I'm going to focus on for the next 15 minutes or so, um, we're starting to get some definite ideas of how they frame First Nations participation here in Lethbridge. And what we're finding is that uh, the wealthiest individuals in town that we have spoken with tend to have less interaction with First Nations people, 
and they seem to have a less uh, a less clear understanding of not only who Aboriginal people are, but potentially what rights they have in our society. Uh, these stereotypes become ingrained within that elite group of individuals. But what really disturbs us, well, me, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Joe, but what really disturbs me at this point is that this class tends to foster our leaders. When we spoke to all but two of our council members, including uh, Mayor Bob, um, we were really intrigued to find uh, how unattuned a lot of these individuals were to a lot of the concerns that we were bringing to the table when we interviewed them. Now, again, that's not to center out any individual or the council itself. It's more to act as a representation as to how society views these things, and we just don't have a clear understanding of what's going on. And then finally, uh, what we're finding is that those communities that live closer to uh, two First Nations communities uh, tend to generate a better understanding, and because they tend to be core communities or peripheral to the core communities, lower socioeconomic standing communities, uh, they don't have the opportunity to rent places out, but they do at least demonstrate a little bit more of a clear understanding of, of who they're interacting with and who those citizens are within our society. So again, I guess the general gist of it here is affluence and location is a factor in terms of how people interact with First Nations folks. Now, Another issue that's popped up is how we in Lethbridge define our community and who we define as community members. And I've heard this in the other 23 interviews, I think 19 times. If you want more information, you can email me and I can clarify. But uh, what we're finding is that people are oftentimes not clear as to why Native people want to live in Lethbridge. If it is racist, why do they want to be here? But if it's not racist, which most people will proclaim, why do they want to come here? They can live out in the reserve. You know, you get free education, you get free cars, free housing, all that good stuff. Why would you want to move into the city? It doesn't make any sense. And we heard this. This is a quote from one of our participants in this project. You have the reserve. We have the city. Why are the two mixing together? We don't get that. And one of my concerns here is that uh, when you start to talk in terms of all the freebies, right, all those free gratuities, free education, free houses, free everything, and then when you start to take a look at how the reserves operate and perhaps not in the best socioeconomic condition, you are drawn to a conclusion that those folks, right, them, those people, are not able to deal with all of that good stuff we've given them. So why should we give them a break in the city if they haven't shown that they can operate in their environment? That's a very important subtext that's starting to develop out of this research. I'm not going to worry about that. Also, the failure to properly integrate into our society has become a very important theme. Uh, this is a quote from a focus group that we conducted back in December. And uh, I was simply asking, why does this neighborhood have no Aboriginal people living in it? And the response was, well, if they're willing to strive and better themselves, we'd be willing to let them into our neighborhood and be part of the community, welcome aboard at that point in time. Um, when we spoke to a city councillor about these similar issues, uh, that individual, not a he or a she, that individual uh, specifically articulated that all ethnic groups have to go through what First Nations are going through. It's not that big a deal. It's a trial by fire that all coloured individuals have to deal with here in Lethbridge. And when I informed this individual that Aboriginal was actually a constitutionally recognized category, that we're not talking about an ethnic group, we're talking about a recognized nation within a nation, um, that, that that individual didn't want to hear that information at all. Just an ethnic group that has to go through this. Once they've done it, they'll be fine because then they'll know how to navigate the environment. 
Another counselor told me simply that, yeah, okay, yeah, I may admit that racism or discrimination exists here in Lethbridge, but a thicker skin is what we need to combat that. Not me. First Nations need a thicker skin. If you're called an Indian, if you're called one of those derogatory terms, just kind of buck up, deal with it, and the next generation things will work out much better. When I spoke with some housing officials here in town, not Diane Randall's crew, other housing people, I want to make that clear now, um, I was told that my project, our project, was superfluous. Why are you doing this? If you're going out and looking for NIMBY, you're doing nothing more than storm chasing. Uh, I've been called a shit disturber on more than one occasion. Uh, I'm an academic living up on the hill who doesn't really want to connect. I just want to, you know, muddy the waters. Racism in Lethbridge, uh, when asked, another individual told us, a council member at that, I think it's something that does exist, but it takes three or four generations to work through. When I told that individual we're into our fifth generation of interaction in southern Alberta, and that would add up to about eight generations, uh, they kind of reeled a little bit but thought, no, nah, another four generations, I should do it. Then at a focus group, when I asked why a lot of these attitudes seem to be projected and internalized, um, I was told that we know that within our area there's a suspicion, an undercurrent of suspicion of Aboriginal peoples. And when I asked that individual what that meant, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, it is what it is. So while we have a lot of these stereotypes and ideas floating around, um, sometimes there's not a lot of intellectualization as to why people are saying what they're saying. It just is. It exists. It's ingrained. And if anybody saw Dory Rossiter's... Uh, racism dialogue that she uh, had as part of her program, there's a young guy, Roy Polgorelski, from the Aboriginal Council of Lethbridge. He made some fantastic comments. Really, the young guy, very, very bright young man, um, he said, well, if it's ingrained, we can uningrain it, essentially. If those attitudes did exist, why aren't we doing something now that's more proactive and educational to get rid of those ideas and ingrain new ways of living with one another? We don't have to accept that that's the way it is. When we did a focus group in one of the communities here in town that shall remain unidentified right now, um, we were talking about this, the potential of a, a First Nations transition home here in town for, uh, for men. And the idea was where are we going to place it, how are we going to strategize, what's it all going to mean? And uh, one of the individuals, and a, a lawyer in town, asked me, well, you know, there's a transitional home in Tabor, but it's in an industrial area. What's wrong with it being located there? Why should we put it in the neighborhoods? I said, well, transition home is to allow people to transition into the neighborhoods so they have an opportunity to have advantages that all of us have. And um, it just didn't, under he didn't understand. Um, and this is one of the few times where I really got frustrated and I indicated that, well, the reason that you don't want people in your neighborhood is they could never meet your socioeconomic level. And he goes, well, that's right, so why would we put them here? So, again, those ideas are very ingrained at this point in time. Speaking to a, a young woman who happens to head up an Aboriginal agency in town, uh, she was telling me about her husband one day sitting out in the front deck. Next door there was a worker working on a house, and his dog got loose and ran after a young Native girl who was biking on the street. And when he went up to the guy and said, well, what if your dog bit her? His response was this. Well, at least it's getting rid of your Indian problem. So this is, again, stuff that's popping up on a regular basis. And if I look tired, it's because I am. You know, I've been dealing with this stuff for 18 months. And that's not to put me in a position of voice. Think about the folks who have been dealing with this for 18 years or 30 years or 40 years on a regular basis. Again, the emotional and the psychological toll that it's taking on folks. 
When I appeared on Terry Vote's program back in December, I obviously upset somebody. Probably most of my research team because I'm hogging all the spotlight. But what we had is an email from a resident in town. Uh, again, nameless. Instead of providing some fluff report about the complaints of Aboriginal residential search treatment, why not provide opinions from the many past sorry and regretful landlords and co-tenants in our city with their experiences as Aboriginal people as tenants? Out of the blue, somebody just emailed me. Mind you, I've had a couple of physical threats as well. I've also, on the flip side, had many people call me at home. Ironically, I've never had that in anywhere I've lived and worked. People actually found my number, called me, and said, hey, I think you're doing a good job. I think this is interesting. So it's really intriguing living in a smaller community from that uh, vantage point. But then Mayor Bob got thrown under the bus as well. Your opinion belongs in the same barrel as our dope land mayor and his tribe. I love that one. I got to tell Mayor he's a chief. <laughs> So what we've got is just a couple of final uh, thoughts at this stage, just some of the conclusions that we've generated up to this point. Uh, each community, and this can be broken down into each neighborhood in town, has its own distinctive ideas about what not in my backyard is and whether or not First Nations can participate as members. Uh, it's an incredibly complex phenomenon. It can be racial, it can be economic, it can be racial and economic. It ranges the gamut, and it's very difficult for us to identify at this point. Uh, just because you're rich does not mean that you have a greater understanding of these issues, and that translates into just because you're a political leader does not mean that you know the answer. Neighborhood location is an issue, and ultimately we have to take a look at the complexion of the neighborhood, the socioeconomic status of those who live within, so that we can get an understanding of perhaps why NIMBY looks this way compared to other neighborhoods where it looks another. Now, I was asked, and I think i got three minutes left. The guy with the tie keeps telling me this, so... Um, we're going to take a look at how to address not in my backyard, uh, some correctives. Uh, rather than identifying all the negatives, what can be done to perhaps combat some of these issues? And what we're finding is that there's a tremendous amount or a, a tremendous lack of race, or, uh, race consciousness, of uh, rights consciousness. People don't understand what their rights are, that they cannot be evicted from their house with one day's notice, that their damage deposit has to be paid back, that if you're told because you're native I'm not going to rent to you, that's illegal. People don't understand this oftentimes, and once we have told them in the courses of our interviews, they're just shocked. They're dumbfounded that this is occurring. So um, I'm starting to develop with Vivian White Quills and with Tanya Pace uh, Crosschild uh, some information sessions so that potential renters will at least know some of this information before they go out. Challenge racism. It's not okay. And that goes for everybody in this room. I've seen it a number of times, and I haven't challenged it, and I'll have to admit to that right now. Uh, somebody calling somebody a name on the street, and I just walk by. It's something that I have to shift in my opinion and my attitudes, and it's, a, it's something a lot of people have to challenge as well. Uh, Boyd, you have to continue with your registry, your database of good landlords and eh, not-so-good landlords. Uh, the Aboriginal housing people have been doing that for quite a while, and I think it's a good thing. Finally, we have to lobby for the creation of a municipal landlord registry. Why is it that people who own homes aren't considered business owners? Why don't they have to get some sort of a tag or a slip or a certificate that allows them to operate their business within the confines of Lethbridge, which would also activate a variety of mechanisms if somebody is discriminated against by a business owner? Then finally, just to take a look at what can be done very quickly, Mike, is back over the last 18 months, we've seen some really interesting innovations here in Lethbridge. Uh, there was a provincial program that was utilized by 25 families in Lethbridge who were with Treaty 7 housing. It allowed them to put a damage deposit together and buy a house. 
As soon as those 25 people bought a house, 25 new units opened up at Treaty 7. 24, 25 more people were able to integrate into those housing. Then at the uh, 5th Ave complex there, Kakunin complex, 29 units opened up. So in the course of about an 18-month period, we saw 79 families or 300 individuals housed just with these three little minor projects. And what that ended up doing is opening up yet another 54 rental units that could house 200 individuals here in Lethbridge. So two little projects, well, I guess the Aboriginal housing one is not little. It was four point some million dollars. I don't want to <laughs> devalue what happened there. Uh, but when you think about it, 29 units and 25 units could result in 500 people in town getting housing. It doesn't seem like a lot on the ground, but when we start to factor in human capital, what it involves at the community level, a lot of good things can happen. So, again, I hope I haven't disturbed too much, but at the same time, I hope I have had an opportunity to enlighten. Have a good lunch, and I'm willing to take whatever questions you want to throw at me when we're done. <laughs>